You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 29th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Happy Halloween, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Oh, what, Jay? Okay. A little gassy there, Jay? Somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed. My voice is a little hoarse. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Yeah. And better throw before you talk. (laughs) Happy All Saints Day, right? (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) which is the day you'll be listening to this, but on October 29th in 1390, there was the first trial for witchcraft that took place in Paris, France. It was the first trial in Paris or the first trial ever? First trial for witchcraft in Paris. I guess the first documented trial for witchcraft in Paris. I guess prior to that, there were no trials. They just, you know, stoned the woman to, stoned the woman to death. Oh, there's a witch. Bam. She's done. No trial. Those were the good old days. But in Paris, at least you get a trial before you get stoned. So. Well, despite that depressing yeah, news, happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Happy I know Halloween. it's the Novella Brothers, you know, favorite holiday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the only relevant holiday. (laughs) Uh, That's not true. There's also my birthday. You keep doing that. You keep going back to that, (laughs) Rebecca. It's really sad. I've read that Halloween is not being affected by the economic downturn, which is nice. I mean, the whole whole point is to be scared. And what's scarier than some crazies driving our economy into the ground? Mm, I mean, I don't think that's the whole point to Halloween. Obviously, the whole point to Halloween is to eat human flesh. Wait, uh, what? Come again? Well, it's one, of, it's one of the main points, Jay. Bob, you're having a very pirate-themed Halloween this year. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm totally into it. My basement is all decked out. You guys, well, Rebecca wasn't there, but everyone else I'm was sorry. there. Oh, yeah. I'm how sorry. Were the de- how were the decorations? It was awesome. It, it was though. like a ride at Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was incredible. It was. I, it was a small I, ride, I but it was a ride. this year. Yar. Well, when you don't have, when you when you get laid off in October, you have plenty of time to decorate. Oh, <laughs> perfect timing, oh, Bob. That's <laughs> that was a wet dream, man. I mean, what, what oh, better man. time? What if you got laid off six months ago? That would be terrible. Ah, uh, it would. I yeah. As if you were just starting a new job, October first. That would be bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would yeah, be very bad. Bad, very bad. We do have one bit of Halloween themed science news today. A vampire moth was discovered. This is a population of moths that are closely related to a fruit-eating moth, a fruit-eating moth that has a, a barbed and sharp tongue. And this subspecies, however, when um, you know a, the researcher allowed it to land on its hand, it would actually stick the, the barbed tongue through the skin and then lap up the blood that comes out. That's awesome. that's pretty sick. Yeah, blood eating a blood sucking vampire moth. My favorite line from that article was it said uh, some researchers. She noted, I don't know who she is. This is Chris Chris Nice, a biologist at uh, Texas State University in San Marcos. Some researchers, she noted, hypothesized that blood feeding in insects and animals evolved from behaviors such as feeding on tears, dung, and pus filled wounds. 
Feeding on oh, tears man. is, uh, you know, as much as dung and pus is gross, I think feeding on tears is probably the coolest thing ever. Like, <laughs> I, thought, I thought only Cartman and, uh, and demons did that. <laughs> yeah, Cartman. <laughs> no, that floaty thing in Star Trek Day of the Dove does oh, that too, right? Yeah, remember that? Oh, uh, I'm sorry, but nothing, nothing beats feeding from pus-filled wounds. Sorry. Pus is very nutritious. A lot of protein in there. The milk. Oh, my there God. Have a glass of milk. No, but imagine, imagine the thing that evolved to... <laughs> God, to so sick. Imagine the thing that evolved to feed off your tears. I mean, that's I know. The, you know, yeah, like so. It's weird. basically there to make you cry, and it's going to do whatever it can to make you cry. So it's probably like, uh, like beauty queen for a day or whatever queen for a day. You know, it's like well, it's probably like an IV solution for the bug or something. You know, Show, showing Brian's song and things just, <laughs> just to to get you to cry. But the progression, though, it actually kind of makes sense because you got these insects. That are that are nectar feeding and licking or uh, you know lapping at the, these fruit juices and then and then they develop this kind of piercing behavior that to you know to pierce the fruit so they could suck up the juices from the fruit and then once you have that it's just a you know it's just a small little hop to piercing the skin and sucking blood yeah yeah the, then the teeth come and then they can't go out in the sunlight it's all foul <laughs> it makes a lot of sense and the villagers with their fire. That's the that's the the cool thing from an evolutionary point of view, and it's clearly a, a you know, related species. It looks very similar, except for just subtle changes in some of the coloration on the wings. And, and you know, of course, that's exactly the the pattern that that evolution would predict. Now, of course, what happens sometimes is that there's a there's an evolutionary progression such as that where you go through several stages, each of which is a, a small step to the next one, but then the intervening stages become extinct, and you're left with just something you know, far out on a limb that looks very different from anything else, and you know, the creationists will say, well, how did that evolve? You know, <laughs> like, the, like the bombardier beetle, it had mixes chemicals in its hind quarters and then squirts out like a little explosion, and you think, well, how could... You know, something evolved, something that so complex. What were, where were all the intermediary it stages? It explodes out of its butt. Its butt explodes. Okay, I just want to yeah. drop the technical talk, like hindquarters, and get to what matters, and that's the fact yeah, that, that something is that a little bit over your head, Rebecca? Butt. I'm sorry, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then you look that there are beetles that have chemicals that they mix to do other things. They just they just don't don't explode. So here, if all of the fruit eating, you know, and lapping moths died off, and you just had the vampire moth. You know, a creationist could say, well, how could such a complex and, speci- and specialized feeding apparatus evolve? You know, it would, be, it would be worthless at the intervening stages, but clearly it isn't. It's just used for other things. The co-aptation. Steve, there's a whole angle to this that you're missing. And what's that, Jay? The, the whole possibility of the fact that this could be a vampire that turned into a moth. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. It could be I a subspecies of vampire. You have vampires that turn into bats. Some some obviously wolves. turn into wolves, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and others turn into possums. Yep. And and now we have the dinosaurs that turns it creationists. Ducks like like count count Docula. Let's not forget. Mm-hmm. And count count Chocula. <laughs> <laughs> blah. There's there's nothing scary about blah blah. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Say that blah. until you find them in your breakfast cereal, lurking in your milk. Well, uh. There is some other non-Halloween-related news we'd like to talk about this week. Bob, you've been dying to talk about this one for a number of weeks, but we just haven't, got, we haven't gotten to it. A new type of planet has been discovered. 
Kind of. Uh, yeah, this one's been in the SGU green room for quite a while, and uh, so it's a little, you know, it's a few weeks old, but it's still pretty interesting. And uh, it there's smells actually a, little a, funny. A, a, a bit of an update um, at the end. I'll, I'll mention the update. But um, this has to do with a, a new European uh, space telescope called uh, Carrot Carot. I don't know how to, how they pronounce this, but the acronym stands for Convection, Rotation, and Planetary Transits. And it's spelled C-O-R-O-T. This is uh, this space telescope searches uh, for exoplanets, and it also studies insides of stars, uh, so-called stellar seismology. Now, there's different ways to detect extrasolar planets. One of them is to measure the tug on a star from one of its nearby planets. But this this space telescope actually, uh, as the name implies, it measures the dip in brightness of a star when one of the planets crosses in in front of it. And using this technique, the probe found something quite extraordinary. It's an object the size of Jupiter, but more than 20 times its mass, which is about twice as dense as lead. Uh, so it's it's pr- pretty extraordinary thing. It's also, uh, the other weird thing about it is that it, it's in an orbit lasting only a little more than four days around its parent star. So it's quite a combination of an extremely big and massive object with uh, an, or- an orbit that's just about four days, which uh, I think the record before that was like nine or ten days. Uh, the the object is is called Caro uh, uh, XO3b. The problem is, is it a planet or a star? That's the crux of the problem is that they they really astronomers are having a hard time determining whether this thing is really a planet or a star. It's not as cut and dried as you might expect. Um, in this in this case, well, it's certainly it, there, there's no nuclear fusion going on, right? I mean, it's not. You mean a, a planet or a failed star, right? Right. If it, yeah, if it was a st- yeah, if it was a star, it would be something like a um, it would be a, a brown dwarf or a sub dwarf, a sub a, a sub brown dwarf. Brown dwarf stars, uh, they're they're so called failed stars. They never really fuse uh, hydrogen into helium. Uh, what they do is they fuse deuterium. They 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 use deuterium, and they last only about ten million years. And then at that point, they're just kind of like a, a dying ember. So I guess potentially, if this was some type of dwarf star, it could be a uh, a star that was that was fusing deuterium millions of years ago and has stopped, and it's 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 cooling down. Now remember, we have very limited information about this about this object, so we it's hard to tell. You know exactly what you know what it's made of, Bob. I don't think that it's actually called a failed star. I believe that they prefer success impaired stars. Success, ha, have heard good. Excellent. Now, another bit of interesting information here is that this object it's in kind of like a no man's land between the biggest planet previously found, which is about twelve Jupiter masses, and the smallest star ever found, which is about seventy. So you've got this huge gulf of masses that there's never been any object found in that in that range and this is the first one in there and that's why it's so confusing and they're not sure exactly uh what it is mm-hmm. according to uh dr susan a grain of the university of exeter she said there's no clear consensus among scientists where to draw the exact boundary b- between planets and brown dwarfs no object has been found before which is so close to this boundary yet orbits its host star so rapidly uh, many astronomers had started to think that such an object did not exist I got one. I did blog about this. One somebody had a comment that the IAU's uh, definition uh, for extrasolar planets says that if it's massive enough to sustain deuterium fusion, thirteen times the mass of Jupiter, then it's a brown dwarf and not a planet. And that was by uh, a commenter 
uh, known as Little Green Man. He calls himself. But, but but we know right now that it's not fusing deuterium. And just again, just for listeners, deuterium is hydrogen with one proton and one neutron, whereas regular hydrogen just has a proton. Steve, you're right. Yeah, we, there is no evidence that it's fusing anything. And if, of course, if there was any hint of that, then I'm sure it would have been mentioned. It's, I think pretty much that this thing is at such a distance that we really only know some of these basic things, one of them being that, that it's, it's huge mass and its proximity to the, to the star. If there is some sort of cutoff where, say, it's you know, 13 times the mass of Jupiter, and therefore, if it's more than 13 times the mass of Jupiter, then it's got to be a brown dwarf. I don't know if that's a, if that's a good definition uh, for, for a brown dwarf, because what, uh, what if it's made of, of lead? It's not going to be, there's no deuterium to fuse. It's not, so it, yeah. it can't possibly be a brown dwarf. And also, from what I've read, I think the best way to define a planet, to distinguish a planet from a star, is, is how it came about. To me, that seems the most reasonable way to, to really define whether something's a planet or a star, is how, you know, how it came about. Did it coalesce from a, a ball of gas, or did, did it form in, you know, in an accretion disk of, a, of another star? I don't know. I don't uh, know so if I agree depends. with that. I, th- I would think that the best definition is, is it fusing anything? You know, if it's, it has enough mass and enough stuff that it's creating energy and fluffing itself out by, by making energy, by fusing stuff, then it's a star. But that, that's fine. Time. That's fine for the obvious stuff. But what what do you what do you do for this fringe stuff where you're not too sure? I think that's the kind of information that that would help you. Another good indicator is is the internal structure. That's another key piece. If you've got if you've got a, a metallic core, then chances are you're going to be a planet. But if you've got a core that is more similar to your in in chemical in chemical composition to your atmosphere, generally a star's core will be similar chemically to a, to the outer atmosphere. So that's that's another good way to distinguish the two. And I don't I don't think just by going by mass in this in this case when you're in this kind of no man's land. It's, I agree. It's not mass the is not indicator. enough. I think it's what processes are going on inside. Yeah, which thing. which which kind of ties into the the structure and and how it came about. I mm-hmm. think. Hey Bob, did they discover this? Like they have pictures of the planet, or are they inferring through gravity and its effect on the star? It's well, no, they didn't. It's the transit method. So they just basically they uh, they measured the light output of the star, and they and they found this dip in the light intensity. And the key though is that it can't just happen once. It's got to be on a regular basis, so that you can so that you know that it's something that's in orbit, basically. So, so right that's around. how they know. That's how they know how big it is. But to know how massive it is, that must be because of its tug on the, the star that we can see, right? The article I read didn't go into details, but other, other countries actually, this is truly an international effort. A lot of other countries determined different aspects of, the, of what we know about, about this object. Um, and one of them was the actual you know, determining its mass. And they didn't really go into detail how that, how that was determined, but that would, be, that would be one way to do it. Yeah, and, and I wonder so, if they'll start definitely. looking for maybe some moons or, or moon orbiting this thing, and that would help pull it into the planet classification. No, it couldn't. T- it's too close to its star to have a moon. The tidal forces would would wipe it out. Plus, or, I, or would I, take it. I mean, that's why you know Mercury and Venus don't have moons because the sun would steal it from them. Well, you'd think so, but you wouldn't think that this thing would be so close to this star to begin with, right? There are strict limits on how close a planet can be to its star based upon their relative masses. And, and for the planet to be able to have a moon. There, there, there's a calculation you could do. And uh, I, you know, this thing is so close to a star, I think it just would be impossible for it to have its own moon. Hmm. Yeah, plus it's so dense, it would have to be so far away 
from the uh, from the planet to be outside the was it the Roche limit mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it would be which would bring it of course even closer to the sun to its to its parent star and then the, the star would just suck it up. But an interesting story. Was there an update you were going to tell us? Uh, one update actually has to do with the other part of the name of of the space probe, the uh, convection and rotation, the, the stellar seismology. By um, by stud, it, this was actually recently they they were able to use this this technique to observe the oscillations of of three different stars, and because of these o- oscillations of the star, they they can look inside the stellar interiors and and try to determine what's going on inside these other stars and for the first time this is this has been done uh and they do this by looking at the variation in light emitted by the star as the surface kind of wobbles and they've actually been able to investigate the interior so that's pretty cool that they're they're able to look at the in- interiors of other stars besides the sun even though they're they're light years away so that's interesting technology very interesting another uh interesting bit of science from the past week French scientists have announced that they are very close to a fully implantable artificial heart. Wow. Yeah, now this is one of those technologies that sort of that has been widely anticipated for a long time. Of course there are have there have been artificial hearts like the the Jarvik artificial heart, for example. Uh, this one is being developed by uh, heart specialist Elaine I think it's pronounced Carpentier. Uh, from a, a French company called Carmat, C-A-R-M-A-T. And the art, an artificial heart is one of those deceptively tricky engineering problems. At first, you might think, you know, what's the big deal? It's a pump. You know, it's two or two pumps in series. Steve, it's a pump uh, that loves. That's you know, true. It, you can't just make that in a lab, <laughs> can you? No. Sorry, but here's, there's a couple <laughs> of really tricky parts to it. Uh, if you ha- if it's not shaped just right, if you have anything sticking out, any me- mechanics, then that could be a location on which blood clots can form. And if you have that, then the blood clots can perform strokes. They could, or they could just gunk up the heart itself and keep it from working. So any anything any artificial heart like that, the uh, recipient would have to be on serious blood thinners like Coumadin, which themselves carry a lot of risks. Obviously, rat poison. Yeah, it's rat poison. It's warfarin. Would have to be uh, you know careful about any even minor trauma. They have to be followed very closely for blood tests. Yeah, we have you know plenty of people on Coumadin for various reasons, but it's technically difficult and it's a huge risk in and of itself. Uh, the other problem is that while the heart has to beat very strongly in order to you know generate the pressures necessary to move the blood around the body, it has to do it in such a way that, it's, that it minimizes trauma to the blood cells itself. And some of the artificial hearts uh, that, that have been designed, designed in the past break up the blood cells, the red blood cells, as it pumps the blood. So the, the, the life expectancy of the, red, the, bl- the blood cells goes way down and you get this anemia as a result of it. So, well, that's what Clark had, wasn't it? The first recipient of the Jarvik heart, didn't he uh, experience some anemia because of that? Okay. So those are the two big technical limitations in terms of getting an an artificial heart to function long-term well. You know, not not create the potential for clots and, and minimize destructiveness to the red blood cells. This artificial heart, this new design, solves both of those problems. Um, you know, it has basically two chambers, a right side and a left side. The right side pumps blood, you know, gets blood from the body and then pumps it to the lungs. The left side gets the blood from the lungs and then pumps the oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. 
and it has a you know very smooth interior you know that would not form clots and and squeezes the blood out in a way that minimizes trauma to it so it it could function uh, for a long time you know longer than any previous heart um, but it still suffers from the other technological limitation that all artificial hearts and and really any complex implantable device power like this source. suffers from power and, supply and power supply this one would still require a uh, i mean well this some way to to recharge its batteries uh, it does have a self contained battery that's that's a that's a new innovation with this but they're they're thinking of they have to come up with different ways that they could recharge those batteries you know have some older hearts had electrodes that actually like stuck out of the skin this one they're thinking uh. of using some kind of a of plates that they could like induce a current into the plates like across the skin and then recharge the battery and the, they, they estimate that they may be able to have batteries that could last somewhere between five and sixteen hours between recharges and of it's course big range. You, yeah if it doesn 't get recharged that it stops beating and you die yeah. you know so <laughs> that 's a significant limitation to this technology still Steve, can it change the actual heart rate depending on activity level? That's a really good question. That's the, the answer to that is yes, that they've, there actually are ways that this heart can respond to demand by beating faster or harder or slower. Uh, so that is another kind of new technology that they're incorporating into this design. Because that, that's obviously if you have a mechanical heart beating at the exact same rate and pro, you know the, producing the exact same amount of blood flow around the body, but then when you engage in activity and you need more blood flow, you're not getting it. The heart's just the mechanical heart's just sitting there doing the same pace. Uh, so this one would have some feedback mechanism by which, based upon activity and therefore inferring demand from that, it could increase its output. But the power supply is still the big limitation. I think that's, oh, yeah. you know, that's although this may come, may actually be in use in you know five to ten years. This this heart, the that that's still going to be, I think, the main limiting factor. Of course, you know, having to recharge your artificial heart twice a day is better than being dead. You know, so there's still a lot of people who are desperate. They're, the hmm. the big thing is is that there just aren't enough heart transplants to go around. Twenty twenty yeah twenty thousand a year right that uh, that's wow. right that's right so that's a huge shortfall of of transplantable hearts so this there's a huge need for this and again if if you're going to die because you you can't get a heart transplant and your heart's giving out then you try anything right right Steve so, does this heart does this heart ha- actually have a heartbeat or does it just is it like a constant flow no it, it beats yeah it, it's not a constant flow uh, it actually pumps. Steve, I think you glossed over a, a bit here. It said, the article I read said that the, the heart is covered with specially treated tissue to avoid rejection um, yeah. and the formation of blood clots. Now, what can you, do, what can you tell me about the specially treated tissue? What is it? I don't know. Maybe I go into detail about it. it. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> find any, any details about it. And maybe they're like playing key. that close to the vest because maybe, there's, yeah. there's, there's you know, technological stuff that they're trying to protect here as well so some well, of the how, they, they, how they did gloss over some of the details yeah that's and, great if they if they really discovered a tissue or created a tissue that will have you know avoid rejection by the, our immune system and and the formation of blood clots but i think the the rejection is uh is is more key for for, for like a general application yeah but we, but we there are materials which are not very immunogenic that we've dis- that we've found you know that um, like gold you know gold does not 
does not provoke much of an immune reaction. Arr. You could you know, plate <laughs> stuff that you're going to implant in the body in gold, and then it doesn't get rejected as much. So yeah, I mean that that's not that big a deal. Just finding materials to build it out of that doesn't provoke a rejection. Well, no, it's it says no, but you're right. But that's material. This yeah. says tissue. But that's that's you're right. But this was able to make it into a smooth tissue that wouldn't form blood clots and also wouldn't be rejected. So yeah, that's that's one of the technological yeah. advances. But the, I couldn't find anything that went into real details on that. Okay. Maybe there may be. Probably because it's just not published anywhere. Right. Or, okay. Um, now, Steve, would they also vary its vary its relative size depending on the patient? Like, you know, if they had to put this into a smaller person, I wonder if it comes in different sizes. Yeah, I don't. I don't yeah, I, I, it didn't say anything about that. That's a good mm. question. I, my guess would be probably not. That if they got it to work, they would probably yeah, it's probably challenging it. to get it down to the size that it is, you know. Let alone making it smaller. Still, eventually, sure, but I, don't, I think at the current level where they're at, they're not even at that point of thinking about that kind of stuff. This did also remind me of remember from a couple of weeks ago, science or fiction. This is at the live event. I talked mm-hmm. about the electrocytes, cells yeah. that can like in an electric yeah. eel that can produce electrical current, and that's how electrical eels create their shock and the researchers who were, were who engineered a version of the electrocyte that produced five times the electricity that the electric eels electric electrocyte generates so this of course would be the perfect application for something like that if you can incorporate into this these you know engineered electrocytes um, and hopefully yeah, you know, right. further engineer them so that they're not rejected by the, the whoever you're putting them into uh, then you could create a battery in the heart that Feeds never glu- ran out of glucose. juice. That was, just, that was yeah, making, just making um, electricity in an ongoing fashion from the glucose in the blood. That would be, that would close the loop on this thing. That would make yeah. it a totally Sweet. self-contained, internal, uh, forever functioning device that doesn't have to be recharged or whatever. That would, but, uh, you know, we're just at the speculative point. You know, we, yes, they made the electrocytes. That's cool. It's, it, it creates the potential for this kind of thing. But there's a lot of de- you know, technological development that would go into actually accomplishing accomplishing that. But very cool. Yep. Uh, we have a couple of election-related news items coming up because one and six days from now is the huge, big, anticipated election between Barack Obama. Uh, and John McCain, the, the presidential uh, election. For our U.S. listeners, you know. Yeah, for our non-U.S. listeners. Actually, most, most of the English-speaking world is following this election, oh, yeah. from what I understand. Yeah, but you know we're going to get emails from people that are like, I'm tired of your U.S.-centric news stories. Oh, geez, sorry. <laughs> we're just from here. <laughs> uh so, Evan, you um, sent this one in about – this is not directly about the presidential election, but it is an election-related story about the use of polygraphs in political debates. Yeah, that's right. I blogged about this a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. So, um, in Indiana, a couple of weeks back, there was uh, – a, for a scheduled debate coming up between uh, some uh, people vying for one of the congressional seats – uh, from that district of Indiana, and the Republican part, Party chairman, uh, his name is Larry Schickles, he suggested that during that debate, all of the participants in the debate should be hooked up to polygraphs, also known as lie detector devices. Um, and Or e-meters, if you're a Scientologist. <laughs> right, you know, e-meters. Right. Just covering our bases. 
and here, here's here's the sentence he had that that struck a chord with me. Uh, while he said, "quote him," while this format may be unusual, I feel strongly that voters need to be able to make a clear distinction. I'm sorry, a clear decision without all the usual spin. And apparently, he believes that the, a lie detector right. polygraph will will do that. And uh, you know, it's uh, we've talked about it before on the show, and anyone who's followed skepticism over the years knows that the polygraph is cannot be relied as a lie detector. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does certain things. It takes and measures and records physical physiological responses such as blood pressure, pulse, respiration, a person's right. skin conductivity. Right. And from that, it infers your level of anxiety. So it's measuring really your sympathetic activity. It infers from that your level of anxiety, and it infers from that whether or not you're likely to be telling the truth well, or the, lying. Yeah, the person so like reading it infers from that. Yeah, that exactly. That's right. The, the polygrapher, the person uh, who is licensed or whatever to uh, right. <laughs> to operate the machine, it's based on what he uh, determines the data yield so it's right. total it's, it's it's very subjective totally subjective yeah i mean not, the principles sound yes when when many people lie they their sympathetic activity goes up They're, that's true and you could get to like 60 or or maybe 70% you know uh accurate with a, with a lie detector test but that and that could have a function in terms of like intimidating people into confessing and things like that which is really right. primarily how it's used but it's it's far 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 away from being something reliable enough to be admissible in court. And for this application, I think this is a horrible, terrible idea. What this will do is just mean that the best liars are the are the politicians who are going to do better. <laughs> no. in these oh, Dan, debates. Steve, you're right. Right? Exactly. Oh no! Exactly. Yeah. But you know, and so the so this Larry Schickles, who's with the Republican Party, but his, <laughs> yes, his, I have to say, Schickles, coming from an Italian background, is a very funny oh! name. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> don't even I'm go there. The ad before it even happens. <laughs> <laughs> don't even. But go his, there. his wow. Democrat counterpart, his, that fellow's name is Mike Jones, and here's what he had to say. Here was his he sentence a of no. Little shit, Mike Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what the Democrat guy said. Polygraphs have their use in law enforcement, but I don't see them fitting a political debate. So he got it wrong, too, basically. Uh, You know, yes, they are half right. Right, right, half right. I mean, yes, they're used in law enforcement. But, you know, again, these are not reliable devices by any stretch. This would have the opposite effect as to what this guy says it would have. This would, again, just make the slickest politicians be more successful rather than the most sincere ones. But I, I think the I think the point here is is that culturally speaking, most Americans hear the word lie detector test, they hear polygraph, and they generally accept it as a legitimate device. Do you have any uh, sorts? I wonder if there's any survey or stats on that rather than just making that up. Mm. Seriously, I wonder if. Um, well, I mean, just think about how ingrained in the culture it is. It appears. It, in it the- is, but it's also it's out there a lot that it's like not admissible in court. I think you know, from watching TV shows, a lot of people know about the polygraph. So I don't, I don't know. I'd be interested to know if there's any survey or something about that about attitudes with the polygraph. Yeah, I didn't see I didn't see any attitude surveys when I was doing my research, but it it it. Uh, I did see a little bit about how it is used in courts and where it can be used. There are some limitations on it and where it is used. Uh, New Mexico is the only state that allows open admissibly, admissibility of polygraph exam results. And wow. other states 
have some type of stipulation that needs to be met, such as both sides need to agree that a polygraph can be admitted uh, in, mm-hmm. into, into the record. Um, so it, it really is a case-by-case. Case. And some judges, you know, just outright allow it to happen. Yeah. Um, hey, do you know the new movie's coming up? Um, was it The Day the Earth Stood Still? Keanu yeah. Reeves yeah. is in that? Uh, have you seen the trailer for that? Let's so not that, talk about that. Well, <laughs> it's just that they have the Keanu Reeves character hooked up to what seems to be a polygraph, and they're asking right. him questions. They should not and, crap all over the greatest science fiction movie of all time. <laughs> Too late. Great, greatest <laughs> of all time? Yes, greatest of all time. Wow. Prove me wrong. If not wrong. better than Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got us there, Bob. Fair enough. But, but, there's the cul- but I think there's the cultural reference again. I mean, you know, brand new movie, and there's the old polygraph hooked up to the guy to see if he's lying or not. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a device. Hey, speaking of movies and politics, did you guys see what our forum members did? No. They're a very well, industrious you, group. Uh, I did see that. In California, there's a proposition backed mostly by um, Mormons and fundamentalist Christians um, hoping to make gay marriage illegal in California. So um, there was a video out with a bunch of young people speaking very earnestly, put out by the supporters of Proposition 8, with these young people saying that, you know, if gay marriage is allowed to stand, then all of our children will be taught to be gay or something um it was pretty ridiculous and so our forum members took the video redubbed it to make a parallel with interracial marriage and it was very well done and i was impressed with them so uh those of you who are listening who don't frequent our forum you should because they're doing really (laughs) cool things uh and it's uh now they they enjoyed themselves so much i i think that they're going to be doing more um fun activism things that they can do on YouTube. Now, was this the International League of Skeptics that formed on Indeed, it's the International League of Skeptics. Good work. Yeah, they're kicking That's good work, boys. Good work, boys. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, they they have some other projects in uh, in the works, at least according to their chatter on the... uh, Yeah, they're making a to-do list. They've got a Facebook group. They're they're getting organized. Go get them. Excellent. That's good. Our minions are out there doing the good work. (laughs) Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more politics-related or election-related news item. This is a follow-up to our previous discussions about Science Debate 2008. Now, of course, the debate itself never happened, uh, which nobody yeah. really mm-hmm. thought that the, the probability of there actually being a live debate on specifically on science issues happening this cycle. But uh, you know, hopefully, I think. We, I, hopefully we will see this at a, in future elections. You never know. But what they did do was they submitted 14 science questions to the two campaigns, Barack Obama's and John McCain's, and they submitted their answers in writing. Barack Obama responded on August 30th, John McCain on September 15th, and we'll have the link. You can go to the Science Debate 2008 website and read their written answers to these 14 questions. Um, the one thing that... that impressed me about this or the impression that I got was that just by forcing them to commit in public to these right. questions I think raises raises awareness and the importance of these questions in politics and you know you basically you got them to say I promise I will do this you know I will increase funding for NASA and have a science advisor to the White House 
raises, I think, the profile of the of science in in the in the uh, presidential election. So I think that you know that this just did achieve something. I, I was impressed by this result. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I, I, what I don't have a good sense for though is how much of this the candidates themselves right understand frankly because it's you know how much of this is their advisors having written this for them and just kind of mm. turned it into yeah uh, well i mean that's, a first that's, person you know a first person account that's how it is when you're running for office though i mean i wouldn't expect them to know you know the specific details on every single question off the top of their head you know i no. expect them to surround themselves with intelligent advisors and you know whether it's coming from their advisors or you know from them i think it's important to see what they say and it's you know it's got their endorsement on it and so mm-hmm. presumably they're willing to live up to what's being written there and that's yeah. i think what it well what said right. presumably presumably yes yeah well that's true of anything <laughs> but rebecca's right i mean when you elect a president you're electing the 3000 people that they're going to put into their administration that's true and too. this is telling us who what science advisors did, did each candidate right. tap to put together the answers to these questions, and how good a job did they do? I, again, I doubt the candidates had much directly involved in crafting these responses. It, so it does, it does not tell us how they would think on their feet about these questions. That's true. But again, it does tell us, gives us some insight into their priorities and you know, the people that they have advising them. I hope they read the damn things. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, right, from, right, from where I sit, I doubt very much that they got that involved, if at all. And also, um, well, I, you I, know, it doesn't. It doesn't. Wait, hold on, there, sweet pants. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it also doesn't. You know, say to what degree that they would be pushing any of those answers, or, yeah. or you know. So it's basically answers that I think their team thinks politically would move them forward the best. Mm. That's my that's my opinion. I, I would think that they indeed did read read this because I mean this is important stuff. It's high, it's very high level. There's no real scientific detail nitty gritty. It's just like overall like policy stances on on a lot of these topics. So mm-hmm. I hope that they read this stuff and signed off on it because uh, because they could be called on it at, yeah. at any time. So I. I, I just hope that they would have at least read it and, and had and had a little input, you know, like a little refinement here and there. Because, I mean, this this is supposedly what they're, you know, what they believe in and what they think is important, what they want to do. And I'm sure there are key points in here that they absolutely are, are 100% behind. And it's not just some shadowy guy that wrote yeah. it and, and slipped it on the web for them. Of course, when they're, uh, you know, they, they can submit their answers to these questions, but then followed up with um, other speeches where they talk about how, uh, whether they laugh about research that uses fruit flies, like Sarah Palin recently did, mm-hmm. uh, which was ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you do have to wonder whether or not they're really willing to, uh, whether they care, whether they care about science and whether they're willing to. Uh, see through on what they've promised here. Yeah, I mean, both McCain and Sarah Palin, um, who's McCain's vice presidential pick, hate science. Yes, no, yes, no, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. I mean, let's let's be let's be fair. <laughs> oh they, no, they, are scientifically illiterate and ignorant. Yes, they're putting forward a the the times when they said things that were really what I felt to be anti scientific, like Palin, you know, saying the negative things about the fruit fly research. Obviously, not understanding how critically vital 
Drosophila melanogaster is to our understanding of biology. That was, of well, it was a scientifically ignorant statement. Mm-hmm. And McCain yes. railing against a $3 million overhead projector, which yeah. g- gives the impression that it's like an LCD projector. But yeah. in fact, it's a planetarium. It's a and, planetarium. Yeah, it's worth $3 million. Oh, God. You know, tested on on studies on bears too, on the mating habits of bears. Yeah. So, yeah. but the, that's the, the whole stop. earmark corru- corruption, wasteful money. That they're trying to build a case. That's, that's the that's, angle. Yeah, yeah, that's the angle they're going for. They just happen to be, you know, swiping these uh, science related topics. It doesn't really have to do with like an anti scientific agenda or like say the the Bush administration is accused of having. Right. Uh, but if you look at these answers. I actually was also struck by how similar they were. You know, so on many of them, they, they, they really varied only in how much detail they went right. into on mm-hmm. any given question. Sometimes one would go into more detail, the other one would be more vague policy statements. You know, innovation, they both say, oh, yep, we need to take a lot of steps to improve American innovation. And they, they seem to, to convey a sense of how important it was. They're both on board with you know, uh, man-made climate change and the need to do things about that uh, and on a sci- urgent and basis. Also, Steve, scientific integrity. Um, like M- McCain said in, in his statement, supposedly, I believe policy should be based upon sound science. And Obama said sim- similarly, he said, I'll restore the basic principle that government decisions should be based on the best available scientifically valid yeah. evidence and stuff. So they, they said, that, you know, the nice things that you, you'd hope that they would say regarding a lo- everything that I read. I didn't read yeah, that. Yeah, they, they both talked to talk. But, when it, they both yeah. said that they would have, they would you know, reinstate the what, the presidential science advisor, science and technology advisor and the position they have. In, that's big. For me. Yeah, so they, yeah. You know, I how didn't, pathetic nothing, was that? Nothing hit me where it was like, whoa, that's a politically anti-scientific stance or a dubious stance. No, right. vac- yeah, vaccination's causing autism, nothing like well, that. Well, yeah, I mean, that was just a one comment that... That McCain made like six months ago on the campaign trail. I actually emailed his campaign saying, "Can you please clarify this?" And there was never ever anything clarifying out of the McCain campaign on that topic. I think they just quietly dropped it. And yeah, they dropped it. Up it. Yeah, yeah, right. So both, you know, promised to increase funding for NASA and talk, you know, I think very nicely about the need for uh, to, to for a civilian sort of space program and and uh, all the all of the things that flow from that. So. Yeah, I mean, I think again, I think that the bottom line is it it raises the profile of science in at the presidential level, and I think that that is a good thing. Even the, even I was happy with the even the stem cell uh, comments that they made. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama, of yeah. course, nailed it. I mean, he hit every point I think perfectly about stem cells and and uh, you know, lifting the ban and yeah. And there's yeah, he went th- into thousands of embryos. Yep. You know, being destroyed in fertilization clinics, and let's just use those. Right, and, um, and also that there's there. He acknowledged that there are various types of human stem cells, but none of them have been shown or been proven to have the potential that embryonic stem cells have. And I was kind of happy with what McCain said about it. He seemed to be kind of straddling the fence a bit, but he did not say that he would. Um, he his main thing was that stem cells. He didn't think that embryonic stem cells should be produced specifically for research, but like Obama. He did, he, I think he's kind of going in Obama's direction where he's not, he will be willing to use um, the, the stem cells that would be destroyed anyway because you're just going to throw them out. Yeah. You know? Well, he said, so, he said his first sentence is, I support federal funding for embryonic stem cell research. And he's right. been on record Pretty, as opposing, he's been consistent. Oppo- he, yep. Yeah, he's consistently opposed Bush's ban on stem cell research. Right. But he yep. did – he had to absolutely yes. cater to his end of the political spectrum. 
Well, if you're interested, read the the, the full answers. Uh, we'll, again, we'll provide the link. But I think the the good news is, quick bottom line, good news is that either candidate is shaping up to be much better than our current administration's relationship Yay. with science. So. Well, let's go on to our interview. We are joined now by Diana Blaney. Diana, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Oh, I'm very glad to be back. Diana is a co-investigator from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory working on the Mars Phoenix mission. We spoke to her at the beginning of the summer when the mission was just getting started, and she offered to come back on the show when the mission was closing down to tell us about all of the amazing discoveries. So thanks for joining us again. So give us the quick overview. What's the all the exciting stuff that the Phoenix mission discovered over the summer? Well... One of the things we've discovered was we found um, a chemical called perchlorate present in the soil. And it's a um, mild oxidant. It's very, very soluble. On Earth, you find it in hyper-arid regions like the Atacama Desert. And it's one of these compounds that we didn't know about before because no instrument had equipment like Phoenix to detect it. Uh, it's um, a, a very abundant salt at our landing site. Um, and because of its solubility and it's mildly oxidative, it's gonna, it has a lot of potential implications uh, with respect to habitability that we're just starting to scratch the surface about. One of the other big discoveries is we found carbonates on the surface. And surprisingly enough, we didn't find very many sulfates. Uh, or any sulfates. Um, everywhere else we've landed on Mars, the story has all been about the sulfates. And the search for carbonates has been very, very um, problematic. It's there, there in very low abundances if at all. And at Phoenix, it's the exact opposite. We've got carbonates and not, very, not any sulfates going. And so the chemical environment in the northern polar regions is very, very different than the um, rest of Mars. Um, some of our other big discoveries involve um, the ground ice. We hit the ground ice, and we kind of expected it to be there. Um, what we didn't expect was that the ice was going to be very, very different in very lo different locations. This is one of the things that I'm kind of working on, is that there are places when we dig down we hit ice, ground ice that's almost pure water, while just um, a few feet away, we we hit ice that actually has uh, is a mostly a soil ice permafrost, and it's mostly permafrost. And it's a question we're still trying to puzzle out: is how you can have ice form so close to each other that has such very very different characteristics. We're still just kind of working through the data. I mean, we're, we're collecting data. We just kind of stopped doing robotic arm digging stuff in the workspace last week. So planning things, looking at the data, making it things has still taken a lot of the, the team's time. Right. So what does this mean for the prospect that Mars once contained life? I don't think we can tell that yet. It's a very complicated situation. 
Um, for instance, the perchlorate has has the potential to serve as what's called a freezing point depression. So water that has perchlorate dissolved in it can persist as a liquid down to very low temperatures compared to normal water. At the same time, we haven't found a lot of evidence for salt lags as the ice has been sublimating away. So there's not a mixed ev- there's a mixed evidence of whether we actually form perchlorate brines. Mm-hmm. I do think it does tell us that there are actually processes and going on on Mars that weren't part of our thinking. The carbonates, for instance, could be related to um, thin films of water forming and altering um, soils. The perchlorate, how they get into the soil and what the mechanism for that, we don't know. Everything right now is kind of speculative. We've got, it's kind of like right now we have the pieces of the puzzle, but because things were not really what we were expecting, we kind of had this mental picture of what things were looking like, and we've got all these pieces now that are just oddly shaped and not what we were thinking we were going, that we have to kind of try to redraw the whole process about what's going on. So you have to rethink the implications of yeah. all of this. We, yeah, like the perchlorate stuff came out of totally out of left field. And so the people who do the wet chemistry lab actually had it run a lot of samples about with, with perchlorate. Um, and so now they're looking, going back and doing a lot of um, relab calibration and looking at sensitivities and stuff. Myself, I, I worry about spectral properties of ice and, and the imaging stuff. I'm trying to look at um, quantifying the variability on how much soil and ice are mixed together. Um, other people are looking at how deep was the ice and how that ties into climate models. So we're really at the place where we've got the data from the experiment and we know where we need to look, but we don't have the answers yet. So in about six months, a year, I think things will have percolated enough. We're still a little bit of a work in progress. Right. How much longer would you expect the rover to uh, function? Well, it's it's a lander, and and we're kind of heading into winter, and we're seeing frost move in. And as the temperatures get colder, and the dust opacity goes up, we're really a little uncertain on how long we're going to last. I mean, a lot of it's going to depend not on the environment and what happens, and also. Um, temperatures and things that are kind of outside of our control. Um, we've got an approach where as it's getting colder, the spacecraft is getting colder and colder and the sun's starting to set and we get less and less solar power that we start turning off heaters to different parts of the spacecraft. And so we're trying to kind of step down in gradually and we'll lose, use parts of the spacecraft earlier, like we'll probably not be doing any more robotic arm observations because we've turned off the heater to the electronics that control that um, because that's a big power hog. And so we've now placed the robotic arm in the soil and are going to be measuring soil. So Phoenix is, is really right now transitioning from 
a spacecraft that dug things up and delivered samples into a weather station to monitor the onset of Martian winter. Diana, have they turned on the microphone yet? Uh, we're in the process of trying to look at doing that. Um, I don't know whether it's been done or not, but I know there is in the works, and hopefully that'll happen in the next week or, or two. The, the mission, though, lasted longer than anticipated, didn't it? Oh, yes, by a lot. I mean, we had kind of planned on a, on a 90-day mission, and then we thought, well, we might be able to do arm operations out till mid-September, but the fact that we've been able to continue doing arm observation out as long as we have um, has been just really phenomenal. I mean, people have really figured out how to work the engineering of this spacecraft to a degree that uh, is just really impressive. You might get another month out of it. According to Chris Lewicki, a mission manager, said that you might be able to get another month out of a few instruments that you that you keep keep running. We can do that, but it, it a lot depends on what Mars does. The North Polar region of Mars is a place where we're discovering where we get a lot of weather systems moving through, just kind of like you do, kind of coming off the um, out of the north here in the winter it's from you have uh, in Mars and so we can have dust storms that come through that would like almost overnight raise the dust opacity and it could get colder or warmer than we think right. it was so we're kind of walking a, a, a delicate balance right here and we've got the models down that says we could last a longest a month but Mars really needs to cooperate with us for that to happen okay. if, if it gets dusty for too long of a period or too cold and the heater have to kick on and take more power. So we kind of are taking every day as it as it comes. Right. But but people are in place to kind of keep it going through December. Okay. But regardless, um once the uh the winter's over though and, and everything's been shut down for months and it's been th- in the frigid cold, uh, chances are you're never going to be able to fire it back up. Is that right? Correct. I, you have to realize that the weather, the seasons on Mars are a lot longer than on Earth. So summer on Mars, again, is like 2010. And it'll have gotten cold enough that uh, carb- CO2 ice will eventually start um, right. um, condensing on top of it. The batteries at that point will probably will be gone because they can't survive. So there's a theoretical kind of Lazarus mode where my guess is we'll try to contact it where if it, it survives, we might be able to pick up a signal. But in terms of Phoenix actually doing a lot of productive science and stuff, I think I think we're kind of looking at the end and watching the frost right. kind of move in. And that's the ultimate limiting factor is that the frost will destroy the batteries? That's one of the factors. Like any other batteries, there's a chemical in them, and when, it, when things freeze solid, they kind of expand and kind of stop working. But there's a lot of other issues. None of the electronics were tested to go that cold. The spacecraft just wasn't built to survive yeah. that. We have, we have heaters on a large part of the spacecraft, so... What would it take? What would it take to make it warm enough so that you don't lose the sensitive instrumentation? Right now you have to keep it above, I, I don't know the exact temperature, but there's a temperature we test the electronics to. And what you basically need to do is have power to keep everything warm. 
And when you're a solar-powered spacecraft and the sun sets below the horizons for many, many months and you have no energy, you really can't keep anything warm. Well, have they considered using some sort of uh, radioactive elements to to generate uh, the power? That's what the MSL lander um, rover is doing, the 2009 mission. And so it's it's using... It's not solar-powered. It's using nuclear stuff. But, you know, Phoenix was a quick, let's go up to the, the northern pole and see what's there kind of mission. Not in the northern pole, but Arctic, looking at the permafrost and stuff. To get our science, it would have been a lot more expensive and, and a different mission to have kept it alive through a Martian winter. Was there any significant failure or disappointment with the mission? I wouldn't call it a failure. I will say that the so- the stickiness of the soil and how hard it, w- it was to scoop the soil off and move it around and put it in instruments and things like that was a really big surprise and, and kind of was our, our main frustration during the course of the mission. And that was something that was very, very unexpected based on experiences we had had with the MER rovers and Viking and things like that. We just did not really anticipate that we'd scoop up soil and it would stick in the scoop when we tried to dump it out. So I, I would say that's our, that would be uh, the number one fr- frustration. Um, and I think those kinds of things are just what happens when you go to some place you never been before. Your life from this point forward, at least for about a year or so, is going to be consumed analyzing the data that you got over the summer? Yep, pretty much. Pretty much. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, I've been, I've been seeing the data coming in and, and kind of looking to check to make sure it's okay and does it what, but I'm kind of looking forward to kind of immersing myself and, and really diving into it for, for, for the next year or so. Is it still possible that there's some big surprises in store with the data that hasn't been thoroughly analyzed yet? I think where the surprises are going to come is basically trying to put the data that we have into an observational framework and making sure everything's consistent. Because sometimes, so for instance, there are people working on the depth of the ice table and like how deep the ice is at different places at the landing site. When they finish their map of the depth of the ice and I compare it with my map of the composition of the ice, there may be something that's like really surprising that when we cross compare those data sets that we don't really see when we're working on them individually or as we, or we've seen as we've been just collecting the data. And so I think it's those kinds of things that are going to jump out at us mm-hmm. is is trying to understand all the different data sets as a whole as opposed to each individual piece. But there's no possibility at this point with the data you've collected of finding the telltale signs of uh, enduring life in that soil? No, not, not, with, not with the data. And that was actually finding evidence for, for life is, is a very, very hard and very, very tricky type of, of, of thing. But I think we will probably um, know a lot more about whether the conditions were suitable for life. I mean, in terms of 
did the water melt? Did, how long, perhaps how long it melted? Um, and just the general availability of salts and nutrients and stuff in the environment. But there's not a direct smoking gun saying, hey, there's life. But is it looking as if, as if, um, we sent a mission to Mars and like planted plants or some, something from the Earth on in that soil that it could grow. Is that one of the things you were analyzing? Well, that's one of the that's one of the things we're trying to figure out is the nutrients available and how they interact with the with the stuff. And so, I'm pretty sure that people will be looking at this. And for instance, the the perchlorate story may have implications in terms of suitability for life and stuff. Naturally occurring perchlorates kind of found in Atacama Desert, and it can serve as catalysts for sometimes of biological stuff. It also can be kind of, it's a mild oxidant, so it can also be mildly destructive of, of other types of materials. And so... Getting in and figuring out exactly what's going on with that, um, I think is going to be really interesting and may have some important implications down the road. Diana, are there any plans for like a Phoenix Lander 2 or a future similar mission, something to build upon what, what's already been done? Not directly. I mean, the next big Mars mission is the Mars Science Laboratory, which is scheduled to launch about a year, a little little less than a year from now or some early October of uh, 2009 and it's it's going back to kind of equatorial areas you know, where there's not ground ice um, but it has a lot of instruments that are very similar to the chemical kinds of instruments that Phoenix had only two or three generations improved and kind of souped up there has very, very sensitive organic detection instruments. It has to measure methane in the atmosphere of Mars. It's going to have capability. It's going to be able to go into rocks, and the goal is to sample rocks and then actually measure rocks that may have preserved organic material and search for um, potential biosignatures and things like that. It's a much, much bigger, much, much more complex mission than either Phoenix or the MER rover. It's kind of the next step there. People are looking at going back to the North Pole and the, and the polar regions for future missions, but there's not anything currently on the books yet. But it sounds like, all things considered, it's a good time to be a Mars scientist. Oh, this is a great time to be a Mars scientist. It's, yeah. The MER rovers are getting ready to celebrate their 50th anniversary in January. We're taking pictures from with high-rise at a level that we've never seen before. We just have so much wonderful data, and it's just kind of opening up huge new avenues in terms of what's going on and what are the important processes. And it's been one of the nice things is because of the mission, the missions tend to build on each other. So Phoenix kind of fell, follows up on the discovery that Odyssey made of water in the polar regions. MER followed up on some of the chemical stuff that Odyssey found. The, the 2009 rover is following up on um, discoveries of carbonates 
and clays at different places by the um, orbiters from Europe and from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And so there's just this whole interplay of, of missions kind of going back and forth and, and building on each other. Is there anything that you secretly hope that the uh, that you'll find before this particular one goes belly up? I would like to kind of see some of the frost data come come in in terms of getting some really good um, color, some images of the frost growth and, and being able to figure that out. It would be nice kind of seeing the frost kind of creep up and build around a little bit. I hope we live long enough in the winter to see some good frost coverage on the ground. I just kind of think that would be really fitting for Phoenix. Well, Diana, this is uh, all very exciting. We appreciate you coming back on the show to uh, give us the update on Phoenix. Anytime. And uh, good luck with uh, all the data. We'll be keeping an eye out for announcements coming out of the JPL. Okay. All right, good night. Thank you. Good night. Have a good evening yourself. Thanks, Thanks. Diana. Take care. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to sniff out the fake. You guys ready for this week? Yes, my smell receptors are active. Good. There's another theme this week. The theme is voting. You're voting. Uh You're voting. All right. Item number one. A study of voting patterns reveals that polling stations staffed with younger poll workers correlate strongly with better outcomes for liberal candidates. Item number two, a new study finds that newspaper endorsements have a significant effect on voter decisions, inversely proportional to their perceived bias in favor of the candidate they endorse. And item number three, a new study reveals that the results of subjects being asked to vote for candidates based solely on appearance strongly correlates with actual election outcomes. Bob, go first. Oh, you... (laughs) I'm not even close to going, so you're just going to have to... I'll, I'll go. Oh, God. All right. I'll go. Jay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so so the first one... Jay just wants to go to bed. I do. I'm very tired tonight. A study of voting patterns reveals that polling stations staffed with younger poll workers correlate strongly with better outcomes for liberal candidates. Nah, I don't know about that. Item number two, a new study finds that newspaper endorsements have a significant effect on voter decisions, inversely proportional to their perceived bias in favor of the candidate they endorse. And the last one, a new study reveals that the result of subjects being asked to vote for candidates based solely on appearance strongly correlates with actual election outcomes. Wow. Okay, I would believe that one very much. The first one seems a little wonky to me, the one about the younger staffed people. I mean, like, what are they all, like hipsters, listen to Beck, you know, spinning records? No, I mean, like, toddlers. <laughs> what do you have against Beck? <laughs> what's, what's records? Because he's a Scientologist. 78. Spinning what now? I'm going to go with the, 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 that one, the one about the younger uh, poll workers. That's the fake. Already? Bob? Yeah, I'm going to agree with Jay. That that just doesn't sound right. I mean, you're going to what? You go to a polling station and there's somebody, somebody young there, and you're you're going to increase the odds of you voting liberal. I mean, you're going to vote for who you're going to vote for, regardless of who the hell crosses out your name on the big list. Um, and that's all I've got to say. Okay, Rebecca. 
Oh, man. Yeah, the only one that kind of rings a bell with me is the last item about subjects voting for candidates based on appearance because I uh, I mean that that sounds like you know when when JFK was on TV his you know appro- or as um, his polling shot through the roof because he was just much better com- composed but people who heard his debates on the radio thought that Nixon Nixon yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. yeah. thought that yeah. Nixon won but on TV they all thought he won JFK won so uh, that makes sense the other two it's basically a coin flip for me because. I don't know if younger poll workers are luring staunch conservatives over to their side with their sexy, good, young, liberal looks. I don't know. Um, but that does sound a little suspect. So I guess I'll just uh, I'll go with the with the team on that one and say that's fiction. Okay. And I don't, I don't like poll workers. To me, it sounds like strippers. <laughs> uh-huh. Huh. Way, to, way to bring down the level of discourse, Bob. Well, it is an election season. All right, Evan. Go ahead, Evan. Yeah. So I, I, I do also agree. I mean, we impl- are we inferring here that somehow the younger poll workers are maybe tinkering somehow with the the results in favor of the liberals? I don't, I don't know, but it, that just seems really a little too fishy. Um, as far as the other two are concerned, though, the newspaper having an effect on the inversely proportional to the to the candidate that they endorse absolutely newspapers are not not looked upon too favorably these days by a lot of well, people. Well you may be misinterpreting that a little bit Evan. It shows that the the newspapers have a significant effect if newspapers endorse a candidate more people will vote for that candidate. But if a liberal paper endorses a liberal candidate it has much less of an effect. If a liberal paper endorses a conservative candidate, it has a much bigger effect. That's what I mean by inversely proportional to their perceived bias. I still think that one's right. I still think is that, that what you guys right. thought I meant, or did you guys <clears throat> thought I meant something else? That's pretty much what I thought you meant. Okay, all right. Yeah. That was that was a hard one to condense down into one sentence, but that's. So I agree. We're all in agreement. Okay, so let's take these in reverse but, order. Now that that's all, wait. Now that that's all said, I can kind of see a logic behind item number one because the more the younger people you have at the polling stations means that the more involved younger people feel for any given election cycle, and when and, and younger people tend to be more you know more liberal, I guess, and oh, yeah. uh, just. Remember, all I said was that logic it correlates. That, it's too late. At least it correlates. Yeah. Right. Take, I'd know, like to change my answer. Uh, make any causative statement to, there. But we'll take them in reverse order. A new study reveals that the result of subjects being asked to vote for candidates based solely on appearance strongly correlates with actual election outcomes is science. So what they did was take candidates that ran against each other in real elections from 2000 and to 2004, 2006, and then they showed those two pictures to subjects who did not know who the people were. So it was like some state election in a different state or something, Mm -hmm. and asked them to say what they thought about these two people and to say who they would vote for. And the candidates that won based solely on the picture correlated very strongly with the candidates who won in the actual elections. Mm. Um, You can... You know, draw whatever inference you you want from that, and I will. The other thing that they found is that uh, people were far. They, you know, when they said again, they not only asked just who you would vote for, but what do you think about these people? What kind of you know feelings do they do they provoke in you? That uh, people were much more likely to vote against somebody who uh, provoked a negative emotional response based upon how they looked than they were to vote for somebody who had a 
positive emotional response. So if somebody you thought was looked intimidating, you'd be more likely to vote against them that, based upon that than you would to vote for somebody who looked friendly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that the negative had more of an, an impact than the positive. Uh, but it's interesting that you could actually predict you know, who would win an election just based upon how people would vote based on purely on looks, on just a picture. And this was research done at the California Institute of Technology, Scripps College, Princeton University, and University of Iowa, and published in the Journal of Social, Cognitive, and Affective Neuroscience. Uh, Item number two, a new study finds that newspaper endorsements have a significant effect on voter decisions inversely proportional to their perceived bias in favor of the candidates they endorse, is also science. Woohoo! Yeah. They, Glad I didn't change. What they found was that uh, newspaper endorsements had between a 1% and 3% effect on voter decisions. That they, they could give a 1% to 3% bump to a candidate that they endorsed, and that it was greater the more out of line with the normal politics for that paper is, right? So again, if a liberal paper endorsed a liberal candidate, everyone figured, beh, of course they did, right? It doesn't really mean anything. But if they... If a liberal paper endorses a conservative candidate or a conservative paper endorses a liberal candidate, then people are much more influenced by that because they think it must be based upon something other than just the paper's perceived bias. So, I mean, it actually means that people are paying attention a little bit, you know? That's good. Yeah, that's good. Paying attention. It happens sometimes. I'm pro paying attention. It makes me very happy. Wait, what? What were we talking about? (laughs) Happy. Which means... That item number one, a study of voting patterns reveals that polling stations staffed with younger poll workers correlates strongly with better outcomes for liberal candidates is indeed fiction, as you all surmised. Yay. But what is true is that uh, staffing polling stations with younger workers did lead to a greater confidence in the voting process. So if, if uh, mm. voters were, lit, were asked afterwards, you know, how fair was the voting process and everything, that they were much more likely to have a positive attitude about it if there were new and young staff on hand. Mm. But it had nothing to do with the, uh, who they voted for. I see. Mm. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So congratulations, everyone. Thank you. Well done. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Good job, everyone. Guess you guys have all been paying Suck attention. It, I guess two, after a two-year campaign, I guess you guys have been... <laughs> paying a little bit of attention to this kind of stuff. Just a little. Can't avoid it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's true. It's, a, it's, 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 it's amazing that next week it's going to be all over. You know, we get a little bit of a break. Cause we yeah, have no. been in this For Americans, we've been in this constant you can say that again. election uh, cycle yep. for almost 2012, two baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy it's over. It's been crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Just do it already. Do it now. Do it now. Do it. it. You'll do it. (laughs) Jay. Yes. Uh, Might you have a quote for us this week? No, actually. No, I have two quotes. No. Two quotes. I have two. I have one that is politics-themed. It's all politics. And I have a a fantastic quote that a listener sent in. Which would you like first? The the political one. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a quote from Dr. Stephen Novella. And, Ste- I've heard and, of him. Ste- and Stephen wrote, I was hoping for one election in my life when the flesh would not melt off my bones while pulling the lever for the least of two a-holes. <laughs> Stephen Novella! <laughs> I love that quote. That's a great quote. That was in a private That's a email. Good quote. 
<laughs> I don't yeah. think we ever uh, specified that private emails were off limits in the quote of the week. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I think it's. I think it really does sum up what most Americans feel. <laughs> I mean, wasn't last week a, a text message from Darwin or something? I think. <laughs> so you're saying I can go back through all my old emails and start pulling out things that all of you have said? Well, it, you know, it was relevant to today. The second quote was sent in by a listener named Robert Fulmer, and I'd like to thank Robert. It's a very, very good quote he sent in. Uh, this was a quote taken from a book called The Medusa and the Snail, which was written in 1979 by Dr. Lewis Thomas, who was a physician, a poet, an entomologist, an essayist, an educator, and a researcher. And he wrote, We need science, more and better science, not for its technology, not for leisure, not even for health or longevity, but for the hope of wisdom which our kind of culture must acquire for its survival. Robert Fulmer! Nope, wait, sorry, that was the guy who sent it in. But he, deser- he deserves a shout-out. The quote was written by Dr. Lewis Thomas. That's a good one. Woo-hoo. Mm. Medusa and the snail, huh? Yeah. That's good Is that like stuff. the owl and the pussycat? It could be whatever you want, Evan. Hair and the whatever turtle. you want, baby. <laughs> Steve, we'd like to thank you tonight for the Halloween episode of 2008. Oh, thank you guys. Oh, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Just to mix things up, you're going to thank, thank me. all thank of us. Yeah. yeah. Now, you're thanking us. Thank you, guys. I love you guys. Thank, now, thank you, Steve. <laughs> thank you, Steve. Yes, that's, Anytime. A good, that's a good point, Anytime. Jay. We should thank all of our listeners out there because they're the ones who keep us going every week. Okay. Happy right. Halloween, everyone. Yeah. Happy, happy Halloween. Halloween. Happy, oh, right. happy Halloween. Halloween, ladies. Um, please dig us. Actually, uh, did something happen with Dig? They, like, reset what their voting or something and we're back to ground zero? <laughs> How lame is that? Did everybody get reset? <laughs> I don't know. But... I would hope but so. But if you, if you digged us in the past, I think those not, those votes have now been cleared for some reason. So please dig us again. And uh, continue to leave us reviews on iTunes. They're very, very helpful. And com- continue mm-hmm. to spread the word. Get some of your friends to start downloading us and listening to the podcast. Yep. And check out uh, Skeptic, Skeptic Blog. It's going well. We're getting a lot of, a lot of readers, a lot of great comments. Uh, we're getting a, you know, great posts by... Phil People. Plate, Michael Shermer, Yao Man, and the others. Yao Man! Yao Man. <laughs> Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you. Good night, It's Steve. good to be joined to you. And yeah, until yeah. next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Mm-hmm.